0: The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported.
1: I'm Dave Cornoyer, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on March 28th, 2021, and I'm joined today by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, Adam, how are you?
0: I'm good, Dave. A year on and still COVID free.
1: That's that's great. That's the way the way we want to be. Let's uh, let's hope uh, we all get our uh, our vaccinations soon so we don't have to worry about this very much longer. Oh, yeah. So it was it was a great day in Alberta politics uh, this week as the Supreme Court of Canada ruled against the federal carbon tax. Uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney declared March 25th Carbon Tax Freedom Day and through order and council made it an official provincial holiday From Irma to Manyberries, Albertans poured into the streets to celebrate with victory. And from their headquarters in downtown Calgary, Tom Olson's Energy War Room sent out a celebratory tweet claiming victory over the Toronto Globe and Mail, reading, Laurentian elites who imposed the federal carbon tax on Alberta, the unjust federal carbon tax. The decision caused a political tsunami in Ottawa as a key plank of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's climate change plan was totally undermined. Talk of leadership. A leadership coup is raging in the halls of the House of Commons, and the halls of Parliament, with Finance Minister Chrystia Freeland the obvious choice to replace the wounded Prime Minister Trudeau. Of course, none of this actually happened, and the day... Ended up being quite the opposite and quite uh, an unexciting day uh, uh, out on the Supreme from from the Supreme Court of Canada on on March uh, March 25th and to help us discuss and break down the fallout of what really happened is Andrew Leach, associate professor at the University of Alberta School of Business. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew.
2: Thanks for having <laughs> me back. That was a great intro. <laughs> that,
1: that's uh, that 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 was sometimes you know. Uh, 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 you know, uh, people prepare A and B um you know options of, of what what would happen and what wouldn't happen um you know if you win the election or if you lose the election or if you know you win the win the award or lose the award and and this was this was the the uh the option that we prepared uh, that we had fully prepared to push through um and use in this podcast uh when when we wrote up our script last week before anticipating the uh the Supreme Court ruling on on March 25th so may, maybe you can help our our listeners uh tell us about what actually happened on March 25th about the case before the Supreme Court and and who brought it forward and why?
2: Sure. So the, the question before the Supreme Court was essentially an appeal of three provincial reference cases, which were brought by the governments of Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, essentially challenging the constitutionality or the Validity of the federal government's carbon pricing legislation. So I was asking the question of: Is this particular piece of legislation within the powers of the federal government, by the const as defined by the Constitution? And you know, within that sort of, how do we think of it? Which powers of the federal government does it fall under? Is it a tax? Is it regulation? Uh, to some degree, is it criminal law? And and Even is it something that we're doing because of an emergency versus something that we're doing because of a matter of national legislative concern? And so the ruling itself is pretty technical from a law perspective. It's the first time in 30 years that the court has upheld federal legislation under the federal government's peace order and good government power. So this is almost a residual or a catch-all or a catch-all that's left power for the federal government. Uh, and it's the first time, uh, in, as I said, in 30 years that the legislation has been solely upheld under that power. So from a legal perspective, it's it's a landmark case. It's going to be one, I think that will be read for uh, for decades to come. But obviously from a political perspective, it's it's also one of maybe, you know, 8 or 10 cases that have this dynamic of a provincial government or multiple provincial governments creating a situation where they're very much at odds with Ottawa and then taking it all the way to the Supreme Court to to let that uh, to let that dispute be settled finally uh, in Ottawa.
1: So the this has been something that um I mean, the carbon tax the fight against the carbon tax is something that has been ever present in Alberta politics for at least 5 years 5 6 years uh or for at least for at least 4 years I should say since about 2017 um when it really felt it felt like it picked up steam when the United Conservative Party was formed um fighting the carbon tax was a central and I mean until very I mean well, really continuing c- continues to be a key plank in the uh, in the United Conservative Party's um uh political communications but they're not alone you you wrote a piece for for cbc um uh, following the decision that talked about um how it's i mean there were you know there were there were a number of key political uh changes that led to that led to the challenge and led to the both the legal and the political opposition to the carbon tax one was the election of of uh of jason Kenney as as premier of alberta in 2019 uh you said in your, in your in your article that before that it was Scott Moe from Saskatchewan that was kind of the lone uh, voice in, in, in terms of the loudest voice in terms of, of the premiers who was against it and then the um, after Patrick Brown fell um, and and lost leadership of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party Doug Ford came in and, and the PC party changed it's changed its message and and I think we saw the um, the I mean, there's the 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 iconic I say iconic or infamous uh, front cover of the uh, Maclean's magazine from uh, it must have been about must have been 2019 sometime in 2019 with the the five uh, four premiers and and Andrew Shear and I, you can kind of cross off who's there and who's not there anymore who's who's soon going to be there and they called it the resistance to to uh, to Justin Trudeau and the resistance to climate change and or, or resistance to to I would say fighting climate change using using a carbon tax um, so in terms of of the 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 politicians, the premiers who brought who brought the case forward, was this unique in terms of of provinces challenging uh, the federal government on on some on on uh, on a policy like
2: this? No, I, I don't think it is. It is really, if you go back in in history, so Alberta-based history, the exported natural gas tax reference around the national energy program is one that you know if you haven't read the backstory of that the Alberta government actually basically contrived an entire situation to be able to challenge federal legislation. So not only did they challenge the federal ability to enact this tax, but they basically bought themselves a natural gas producing asset so that they could claim it was still provincial natural gas all the way from the wellhead to the border, and that it was being charged that tax illegally, and so they contrived this whole situation to give themselves a better uh, pattern to challenge before the Supreme Court, and eventually won at the Supreme Court. And probably the other one that really stands out is is Manitoba. Uh, Manitoba was frustrated with protectionist sort of supply management policies uh, around chickens and eggs in Ontario and Quebec. And so they were trying to fight this, but they didn't really have a a way to fight it. So what they did was they basically copied Quebec's law, enacted it in Manitoba, and then challenged their own law at their own Court of Appeal had that law deemed invalid, and then they appealed that decision to the Supreme Court so that the Supreme Court would find that supply management regulations at the provincial level were invalid so that they could get access to the the Quebec and Ontario markets. The the Manitoba egg case is probably the most uh, extreme example of governments doing this.
1: That's it. That sounds like some real three D chess. Three D chess going it's, on there. It's,
2: it's quite. Charisma Mathen has a great book. Ottawa U Law Prof. She has a great book on the, on the history of reference cases in in Canada. And some of them really do have these uh, these aspects to them, where you know it is a provincial government essentially setting up the situation as best they can to challenge something that they believe to be outside uh, the reach of of Parliament. Of course, security, the National Securities Regulator is probably the the most recent example of uh, opposition from a variety of provinces heading to Ottawa to try to get a, a law struck down or deemed unconstitutional. So we
1: we know that the the I mean, it, it, kind of explaining it at 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 the at the most basic level, the the provinces challenged the federal government's uh, you know ability to impose a carbon tax, uh, and the 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 Supreme Court deemed that it was constitutional for the federal government to do that. so what do, what does that mean?
2: Like well, well so at the risk of of us both incurring the wrath of Lindsey Teds at the University of Calgary, <laughs> they actually did not determine anything about carbon taxes. They determined okay. that it was it was uh, constitutional for the federal government to enact a regulatory charge. and you you may have seen some of the noise about this uh, through the week and the weekend about, you know, oh, look, the Supreme Court says it's not a tax and any journalist who says it's a tax (laughs) is now like buying into the great, but but that is actually something that they determined. There's a piece of the judgment that says, you know, is this a tax from, in in constitutional terms? And a a tax Mm -hmm. in the constitutional term is something which is primarily enacted to raise revenue. So the fact that this was policy primarily enacted to change behavior and reduce emissions says that, you know, for the purposes of, the federal government's powers under the constitution, the fact that they have the power to tax is irrelevant. This doesn't fit in it. Uh, and so that's is part of the reason they had to look to this uh, general power, because there isn't a nice, pure, a nice, well-established federal power to regulate with respect to the environment or to regulate with respect to climate change, or even to enact this type of what we would call colloquially taxation. So they had to argue that this was A particular subject matter that was outside the realm of the provinces that was important from a national um that there were important national dimensions to the problem and effectively that only the federal government could effectively regulate this problem that there's a provincial inability so to speak to regulate at least in the way that the federal government was seeking to regulate
1: so this doesn't uh if Correct me if I, if I if I understood that incorrectly, but th- this means it it doesn't necessarily this decision doesn't necessarily open the door to further federal powers. This is just uh, well, specifically for for carbon ta- or for for climate change or carbon tax or sure. ca- so carbon you're, pricing.
2: You're really hitting the the sort of nail on the head of what the concerns are that, that people have is, you know, on the one hand, what the federal government ruled or the sort of what the court ruled was this very narrow technical decision that says Uh, Minimum national standards for greenhouse gas emissions, for the stringency of greenhouse gas emissions pricing, are within the federal government's ambit. They can do this. And so there's some people who I think are rightly looking at this and saying, well, does that mean that the federal government now... All they need to do to grab jurisdiction over an area that was previously provincial is to say well we're just here setting minimum national standards it's important that we have a coordinated approach and so we're setting a minimum national standard for you know you name it um and the and i don't think that's true although i think the court could have done a better job at avoiding that interpretation and then there's also this question of you know the degree to which through regulating greenhouse gases, the federal government can essentially delve into areas that are more traditionally provincial, electricity, resource policy, etc. So just as broad, even handing the federal government authority to regulate in that area is, is going to tromp on provincial jurisdiction on, on the provincial turf. So how does this impact
1: the, so we we, we currently have a carbon tax, some provinces have their own carbon tax british columbia quebec i believe quebec and a couple other provinces have their own carbon tax um the ones that don't have a federal one that's that's i mean i don't i don't want to say imposed i don't know if that's the right terminology it's okay if a federal a federal carbon tax that's imposed um what this basically means that everything ca- everything could just carry on as it does right now in terms of of how things are
2: yeah, so I think the, the way that the chief justice framed it, and I kind of like this, is federal government setting a price on carbon and they're basically saying we will delegate to the provinces to enforce this if the provincial policy meets our minimum sort of stringency standards. Provinces can always have their own carbon pricing program, but the feds aren't gonna step out of the field unless the provincial program is stringent enough. Provincial program is stringent enough, Feds will step out and let the provincial program carry the day. And so the other division that we have is both in federal legislation and in a number of provinces, there is sort of a consumer side carbon price. So you go to the pump, you fill up your car with gas, you're going to pay a carbon tax. Uh, But then there's also a separate program that affects larger emitters, so a larger industrial pricing program. Alberta's had one since 2007. the Notley government modified that a little bit. The Kenny government modified it a little bit, and it's still in place here in Alberta. So the federal government looks at both types of programs, and in some cases, like Alberta, they say, you know, we, we'll impose our carbon price on consumers, but we'll delegate to you on the large emitters. Uh, in New Brunswick, the similar th- the reverse is in place. They delegate to the province on consumer pricing, but the federal system applies on large emitters. So there's there's a little bit of a, a you know two parts to this uh that's worth talking about
1: well every, every province is unique in terms of their their population and their economy and and uh, um i mean what what kind of heavy industrial resource heavy heavy industrial emitters, emitters they have so so right now we seem to be in a situation and there's been a lot of talk about the alberta what, what the alberta government is going to do next and what premier jason Kenney is going to do next now there's uh I mean <laughs> it's it's it seems like it's a pretty funny situation for Premier Kenney to be in right now having spent the past uh, 4 years campaigning so aggressively <laughs> against the carbon tax um that the NDP uh, implemented and you were you were involved in 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 the kind of the recommendations of the creation of that with the the yeah. climate change panel um do you think Alberta is going to to, you know t- t- take the reins from the feds in terms of of the the consumer side and uh, and implement a provincial provincial carbon tax um instead of letting dele- instead of delegating it to the feds or letting the feds impose a, uh, a price in in uh or a program I should say in in, in Alberta
2: I, I seem to be a little bit alone on this island this week but I don't see there being short of some you know, too clever by half plan to make it look like we have a provincial carbon tax, but we really don't. Mm-hmm. I can't see how the premier uh, walks back everything that he's said and says, OK, you know, now Justin Trudeau has won. He's made me impose a carbon tax. I just do not see that. And and there's tons of, the, you know, the premier, the now premier, when it was introduced in 2015, you know he called he said alberta now has a sales tax they're just calling it a carbon tax he said we would never do any of these things without a referendum so he's he's got a lot of very specific things in his background that that would suggest he's not going to do it but I, but i think the big one is he's not going to want to declare that justin trudeau has won that justin mm-hmm. trudeau has has won this fight i think he's happier telling albertans that they're paying justin trudeau's carbon tax every day of the week and that you know, insofar as as he can get some parts of the revenue that fund projects that he wants to engage in, so be it. But I just I can't in a million years see him saying I'm going to turn around and impose a provincial carbon tax on Albertans.
1: It would it would just seem like you. I mean, I I, I agree with you, I, I, and I think it would it would Kenny would be giving up a very blunt instrument to uh, to bash the feds with, which is always I mean nine times out of ten is an effective tool for a premier of alberta to use in in terms of in terms of elections or in terms in terms of politics and um i i, I agree i couldn't see him i couldn't see <clears throat> premier kenny giving that up um at least especially right before the next you know uh, assume we're assuming a federal election is going to happen in the next in the next bit i mean he alluded to it in his speech um or in his comments following uh that you know this is this is the the decision has been made by the courts, but it hasn't made been made in in the political arena, and then you know hasn't been made in the electoral arena. And I mean, a, a federal conservative government could uh,
2: could uh, could could dissolve the program as well if if they were able to win the next election. Absolutely, and and I just don't see you know if you think about obviously Premier Kenny's not going to be blind to his legacy, and right now he's already set a deficit record for Alberta. I don't think he wants to wear, you know. The premier who went from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation to record deficits and imposed a carbon tax in the province of Alberta—I just I can't see that. And I think, you know, to do that and to actually get behind it, right, to say this is the right policy for Alberta, I would imagine probably shuts him out of uh, future federal ambitions too, unless the Conservative Party changes tack quite a bit. I mean, he's not going to be able to say it was the right policy for Alberta to put a carbon tax on and then you know, stand up and talk about all the things that it's done as he has done for their industrial emitters program, right? He's been very luciferous in support of it. Um, he's not going to be able to do that and then turn around and uh, have any remaining federal ambitions if there are any left.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it exists, um, but uh, but he can't really take the blame for, it, for 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 it for it at this point. Nor I mean, nor would uh, would I think that he would really want to claim the blame for uh, for something that he's. I think he played a, a pretty big role in making very unpopular in Alberta.
2: Yeah, and Not- and certainly that you know everything that happened that was bad between 2015 and 2021, 20, March 27th has been caused by either one of Trudeau or Notley's carbon taxes. And so I don't know that he can turn around and say, "But now if I, you know, bring one home and make it a made in Alberta carbon tax, that somehow it's it's okay now."
0: This episode of the Dave Berta podcast is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. You know, Park Power is owned by Chris Kososki, who is a growing and well-deserved reputation for being a guy who cares. If you're in the Edmonton area, you may have seen him around town in his signature bow tie, supporting local causes and boosting local businesses. He walks that talk with his business. It's why Park Power shares its profits with local charities. As a new customer, you can choose a community partner to receive 10% of the proceeds from your electricity bill, like the CKUA radio network. You can visit parkpower.ca/slash CKUA to find out more. And here are just a few of Park Power's community partners. I mentioned CKUA. There's also the Boys and Girls Club of Strathcona County, the Alt View Foundation for Gender Variant and Sexual Minorities, the Festival Place Cultural Arts Foundation, Muscular Dystrophy Canada, the Canada Parks and Wilderness Society, and the Saffron Center, which supports those affected by sexual violence. Learn more at parkpower.ca. With PodPower, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. In this episode of the Dave Berta Podcast, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout-out to What's the Cheesemis? A new podcast with an inside look on Filipinox identity in the diaspora. Cheesemis is the Tagalog word for gossip. Subscribe to hear weekly episodes about disappointing your parents, breaking it to your friends that you're not Italian, trying to figure out why you punched a car, and much, much more. What's the Miss is produced by CGSR Edmonton's campus and community radio station you can download it wherever you find podcasts and on what's the fm. that's t s i s m i s
1: i mean alberta's one one example but what what do you think this means for the other provinces that oppose the federal carbon tax uh,
2: you know to me the one that's that's interesting is quebec because quebec was it has been a leader in pushing for emissions reductions and they have this joint cap and trade program with California, but they were really at the court, not necessarily fighting against against aggressive carbon pricing, but they were there fighting against federal incursion into provincial matters. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think as we, as we look forward to, uh, deeper emissions cuts 2030, 2050, there are some other big files of that nature, right? Electricity transmission is the one that jumps out at you. And and the federal government, if we want to get our emissions down, we're going to need more electricity transmission. That's technically federal jurisdiction, although they've never exercised it in the same way they do for um, oil pipelines or gas pipelines. So for the federal government to basically come in with a heavy hand and start talking about electricity transmission we probably need it, but it's going to be very unpopular in Quebec and and probably some other provinces as well. Alberta, maybe. Um, and so that's another place where you see these alliances, that small federal government view of the world that exists in Quebec and that is very prominent in Quebec legal history is also going to be very strong here in Alberta. So that's kind of the other piece of this that I, I'm watching is, you know, what's the next thing on the you know, to use the term of the week, the federal government big footing in on provincial jurisdiction, <laughs> and and the uh, you know the provincial government here is char- challenging environmental assessment. But I think we we might see some more uh, on electricity transmission as well.
1: I didn't realize that the feds had, uh, had had jurisdiction over electricity transmission. Would would that have been related to? And I mean, I, was, I guess emissions were, were were part of it as well, but when Stephen Harper was prime minister, they implemented um, uh, basically rules that phased out certain coal would eventually phase out certain coal-fired power plants. Was that, did that fall under that area or are you No, that's that?
2: that's separate. So the, separate, okay. the jurisdiction over electricity transmission just falls in the uh, the same section 92.10 that pipelines fall into as okay. long as they cross provincial borders. So they cross provincial or international borders. It's technically federal government's uh, legislative domain. But they really haven't exercised that. Uh, Kristen Van den Biesenbos at Calgary in the law school is is a great person to bring onto a future podcast about this question. She's written a, a couple of papers about it and knows this area of the law inside and out. Oh, As Dave excellent. Berta becomes a law podcast, which I greatly, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, the 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 legal Dave Berta podcast. Yes, um, yeah, uh, not actually a lawyer um
2: <laughs> that's that's okay As you've been sued probably so uh fine.
1: yeah well yeah yeah i've been threatened to be sued no one's actually gone through but the, the uh the threats are always there oh, but okay. uh that's okay did
2: the, did, oh so premier stalmack never actually sued you for his domain name
1: no 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 tyler shandro just sent me a very threatening letter oh okay. that was that was it and then we kind of we we talked it out and they ah. uh i think they realized that uh that, uh, that the, the public relations, uh, side of things didn't, didn't look that great. Didn't look that great on, uh, didn't look that great to them. So they, uh, they kind of right. back, they kind of back down on this. Um, there are, and you, you briefly, briefly mentioned this. There are other fights to come. Yeah, there are, there's, there's two, uh, no, there are two other rule two other cases at the Supreme court now that has to deal with now, correct me if I'm wrong, but bill C 69 and C 42,
2: uh, um, C 48.
1: C forty eight, yeah. Yeah.
2: Um.
1: Can can you tell us a little bit about those and what we? I mean, what we? I guess what we might expect. I mean, if you're going to look into your crystal ball and uh, and you know roll the dice and figure out what the Supreme Court's going to say.
2: Yeah. Well, those are both still. So C sixty nine is still at the Alberta Court of Appeal. Okay. So it's at that first stage where the hearings are done and we're waiting for the Alberta Court of Appeal decision. <clears throat> I think there you're going to see. Something that's very similar in flavor to what we saw from the uh, Alberta Court of Appeal decision on the greenhouse gas policy—that it's going to be a very political, too political of a decision. Of you know, this is the federal government again getting involved in things that are inherently provincial, and and this. Actually, this file has a lot of Alberta history. The Old Man River Dam case was the one that established federal jurisdiction for environmental assessment. And that's what C-69 is. It's about can the federal government assess the impacts of a project on the environment before it issues the required permits? And the argument that Alberta is making is that uh, the federal government is, is expanding too greatly the numbers of projects that they want to look at. And they're trying to get a veto over things, again, that should be within provincial jurisdiction to decide in situ oil sands projects, et cetera. And what the federal government is saying is, you know, any of these projects affect things that are within federal jurisdiction, First Nations, Métis, um, First Nations, Métis rights, fisheries, air emissions, interprovincial trade, whatever the case may be, these affect federal, these have federal aspects to them. And so the Mm. feds should be able to intervene. So I expect you'll see uh, the Alberta Court of Appeals strike down some or all of that legislation or advise that some or all of that legislation is unconstitutional. Canada will, of course, appeal it to the Supreme Court and we'll see whether the Supreme Court again entertains a full hearing or whether they just sort of like they did with uh, Premier Horgan's bitumen legislation, whether they just kind of punt it from the bench and say no this this is clearly federal it's the federal ambit to consider whatever they want to consider when they issue their permits and then c48 is the pipe or the um, northern BC oil tanker ban okay. again uh, you know the that is at an earlier stage I think there's a couple of different argument challenges to that one is uh, a potentially novel challenge that some of the First Nations, in that region are challenging that they should have been consulted because that ban sort of in in some ways sterilizes some of their territory from something which would be lucrative for them. And then, uh, you know, basically makes it impossible for them to engage in oil trade that they might otherwise want to engage in. And so that might get some traction. Uh, But, you know, when it comes to shipping and navigation, there's there are very few clearer federal powers than the power over shipping and navigation. So, uh, again, I don't see there being a lot of hope that uh, that challenge gets a lot of traction. The feds can legislate exclusion zones as much as they want to, as long as they're in coastal waters.
1: And do do you see these as similarly politically motivated cases as uh, as the the challenge against the carbon tax I,
2: I think these ones are more politically motivated so these are much more Jason Kenny challenging the you know federal no pipelines act and sort of laying the groundwork to say I was standing up for our industry and the right to to export oil. Uh, you know, ironically, of course, as, as is the case on all of these files, uh, there's something that the Harper government did that is directly contradictory to what Premier Kenny's is talking about now. So they <laughs> talked about doing a bitumen export ban, uh, banning the export of bitumen to countries that had lower environmental standards than ours. So they were going to effectively stop tankers at the, uh, at the BC coast from going to China. And so, you know, they've talked about some things that are again the federal government getting involved in what would otherwise be provincial decisions. They legislated federal environmental assessment legislation, uh, and that included some of the projects that they're now saying should not be part of federal environmental assessment legislation. So it's uh, you know it's it's again one of it's like a Kenny versus Kenny problem. Uh, why didn't you stand up when when this was happening under your watch federally?
1: another uh, another Kenny versus Kenny problem um, or situation that, that I can think of is the provincial government's recent uh, um, embrace of ESG, and all of a sudden, I mean, essentially talking about social license really is what is what they're is what they're what they're talking about which in a, in a different in a, in a kind of a more um, technical or, or corporate friendly corporate friendly way, I would think. Um, this is something social license was something that they frequently attacked the previous government and attacked the federal government on. Um I guess
2: what, what what am I misreading that or or so I don't actually think that's as much Kenny versus Kenny because I see their ESG as the evolution of ethical oil. Okay. Um so basically what they're saying is you know that okay we we can't use that ethical oil term anymore. We need something else to say the same thing. And so what we're going to say is that Alberta has these very strong ESG things which again lets us talk about the environmental rules in Saudi Arabia and whether or not women are allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia and whether protesters mm-hmm. are jailed in Russia. And do we know, you know, these Russian firms, do we know what they're doing? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, so it's, it allows them to frame the same argument in <clears throat> a friendly or corporate tone, I think, or, a, you know, more fashionable tone. So I don't yeah. know that it's as you'd be, if, if I thought they were serious about, we're going to take on some, you know, environmental disclosure and sort of Bank of England style climate stress tests and these sorts of things. And yeah, you're right. It's a social license argument of the type that that Premier Notley would have made. But I think this is more ESG, you know, ethical oil redux.
1: Okay. And uh, I mean, it seems like they, they, they... I mean, it, it stalled a little, st- obviously stalled a little bit at, during the pan- during the pandemic because there's less international travel happening. But before the pandemic, the Alberta government was spending quite a bit, of, at least talked about spending a lot of bit of, lot of resources, tr- setting up international offices, sending um, envoys from the premier's office and um, overseas. They created the, though I, th- I you know I'm not, I'm not, I think this. Large, you know, in in large part, backfired on them. Created the the Canadian Energy Center, <laughs> uh, the Energy War Room. Which, uh, I mean, you referenced the uh, the the pointing out dictatorships. They uh, they published a uh, uh, I think it's called the Authoritarian Oil Index or some or something yes. like that. Um, and you're right. I mean, it is kind of a different. It just it's rebranding. You're, you're re- rebranding the kind of ethical oil arguments that uh, that Ezra Levant came up with many years ago in in his book, um, and that was 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 pushed there. Um, I guess, do you think they're going to, do you think they're convincing anybody? Like I look at, I look at e, when, when they're talking about ESG and I mean, aside from the, the war the, the, the war room stuff, I look at a group like invest Alberta and I look at David Knightleg um, who seems like a very credible person who's smart. And I think is, is probably, um, someone who bring brings a lot of heft and credibility to that role. Um, absolutely. Uh, do, do you think it's, I mean, do you think it's convincing is the thing? Like, do you think it's, do you think, because we, we we constantly hear this, hear the comments from the Alberta government about how they're reaching out to to investors and to investment groups and banks. But then we hear about large pension funds and banks and, I mean, BlackRock, for example, who are, you know, are essentially pulling out of investing in, in the oil sands or car or coal or, or, or carbon intensive uh, industrial projects. Um, do you think it's, I mean, do you think it's going to work?
2: Um, you know, I, I think the challenge that they have is that the domestic audience is still trumping the international audience in all of these things. So, you know, if, if you look at what are the things that are damaging Alberta's reputation, what are the things that are damaging the investment thesis? It's not a lack of good news stories. It's a prevalence of bad news stories. And, you know, I, I, maybe you maybe I've missed them, but, you know, I haven't seen the premier, the premier's office, uh, the war room, or anybody else acknowledge even that some of these bad news stories exist, whether it's orphan wells, whether it's lack of progress on tailings ponds, whether, you know, whatever the case may be, pipeline spills, etc. These are the challenge, the greenhouse gas, the high greenhouse gas emissions. It's this premise that if we just tell enough about the good news stories, it's going to change people's minds. And I think, you know, you mentioned David Knight I mean, he's, certainly got all of those attributes that you list listed but I just I'm not sure that right now that's still carrying the day. we've seen a lot of evolution in the premier's position from you know climate disclosure as a flavor of the month and and nobody's going to care about it and and mm-hmm. blah blah you know it took one trip to New York and one trip to London for him to realize that that's not true and and I'm, I'm sure that's something that that uh David Knightleg was well aware of before he walked into that position, but I still think that's that's the Premier Kenny that comes out domestically, right? It's still that our ESG initiative is about telling people Alberta's story, as mm-hmm. opposed to our ESG initiative is about cleaning up the things that are going wrong, making sure that there aren't bad news stories to tell four or five years from now.
1: Mm-hmm. What well, one of the one of the things I've been I've been tossing around in my head, and I've, I've shared with a couple of friends. Haven't haven't written anything about this yet, and I, it's probably not an original thought. But I think one of the when you talk about speaking domestically versus or tr- the domestic audience trumping the international audience in terms of Alberta's message, I really get the impression that I mean, th- there's no doubt that things are changing. The economy is changing. Um, the jo- the the workforce in Alberta is changing. Um, the 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 price you know this all, all sorts of stuff the price of oil attitudes international attitudes on climate change are our largest market the, the free market is changing the market is changing essentially in terms of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable for consumers and for for investors and I the one of the things that I toss around in my head is that Alberta and I mean I mean I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of a certain segment of the population and speaking of our our politicians we haven't reached the point they haven't reached the point and i think we as a society haven't reached the point because oil and the energy sector is so ingrained as our part of our self identity in alberta it's part of our culture it's um you know whether whether that's true or not whether you work in the oil and gas sector or not i mean our capital city's hockey team is named the oilers uh you know it's we 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 haven't reached the point where we can publicly admit that oil has been very good to us. The oil sector has been very good to Alberta. Has been as a lot of people have been done very well per, personally, financially under the oil and gas sector. Uh, you know, a result of the royalty as a result of royalties, we've been able to, you know, build world class universities, hospitals. Uh, you know, lots of public institutions. I mean, we can talk about royalties being low, <laughs> low in, a, in, a, in another podcast, um, but we haven't yet reached the point where we can admit that perhaps the future isn't. How oil was in the past, um, and I mean, I talk to people, you know, all the time about how the next oil boom, when the price of international price of oil eventually goes up again. I mean, these prices fluctuate. The next oil boom probably isn't going to be like the last boom because the last boom was so such such a critical part of the last boom was a construction boom, and those the construction doesn't need to happen in Fort McMurray anymore. Those big projects are built, and those it's very like unlikely those project big projects like that are going to be built at that rate in the future, and. I think that we we haven't reached that point where we can we we can admit that things how things were aren't going to be how the future was and until and I mean our politicians can cons- consistently constantly talk about uh, and refer back to you know they refer back to Ralph Klein they refer back to the how things were during during the previous boom and uh, I I think until we I mean I get I get the feeling that until we reach that point where we can have that honest conversation um, that w- at least. As a society and politically, things aren't really going to change here in this province in terms of, of of the direction we're going, in terms of actually finding a new path. And I mean the the term diversification is tossed around a lot, and you know usually we do the we talk about diversification a lot when you know at the point where we should have been diversifying five <laughs> the five years previous during the boom, but when the boom's happening, everything looks great. Um, uh, anyway, so this is just kind of a I don't know if it's kind of a monologue or something. I'm just kind of th- throwing out that idea of uh, of of you know, w- when we reach that point, or, or you know, maybe that's when that's when things can can really change. When we can accept that things are aren't going to be like they were before, and that we need we need to change, we need to diversify. I guess
2: I should say. Uh, yeah, I think I, I've used that term a number of times. That oil sands project construction economy, right? That's what mm-hmm. our two thousand and four to twenty fourteen world was was mm-hmm. multi billion dollar projects left, right, and center, and you know, a raise in the oil price is very different than a world where you've got all of the multinationals trying to get into Alberta, you know, whether it's the, the Klein era, the lease sales, and then it was the uh, the oil sands project construction. I mean, right now, a lot of that land is leased, the projects are planned, there's a huge inventory of stuff that's, that's ready to go, um, and it's just not going. And so I think you're bang on about that, that we have this very different. Even if oil prices recover, we're not looking at a world where we're going to get back to those levels of capital investment anytime soon. Um, you know, the, the important qualifier to that is, you know, it's sort of a Daniel Jurgen oil market thing, right? The surest cure for high prices is high prices. And I think the and the reverse. And so If everybody in the world oil market starts thinking that oil is done, then there'll be another (laughs) group. And and so, you know, I I think that's that's an important thing to keep in mind. But even there, the question is, when that happens, are people really going to come back to making 40 year bets on oil or 60 year bets on oil, which is the nature of an oil sands investment? Or are they going to go after the shorter cycle stuff in, in places like the U.S.? And I think that's what's really been killing us is, is that lack of major project long cycle investment that's hit us and it's hit other projects globally. But it's just we were so much more dependent on it. Um, one of the things that's really you you should have Trevor Toome on uh, I, I'm sure you've had him on before. But Wait, we actually, a, we haven't had Trevor on, oh, but no. we, he's on our list. He's uh, so, I know he, he listens. So hi, Trevor. Yeah, so so Trevor had a had a really neat uh, thing that will grab your political history fascination, because he talked about like during the Lougheed era, the pre- prevalence of calls for diversification were in times of high prices. So when it was booming, people were saying, you know, this boom can't last. We need to diversify. And it's only in more recent years when the calls for diversification have been like after everything has crashed, well, we really should have d- diversified. And so, I, you know, that's sort of a neat, like, you know, without seeing the tr- the Twitter handle on who was who was pushing this out, I would have thought it might have been one of yours, not one of his. So <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of a neat storyline. You know, I'll, I'll take over the monologue here. I think one of the things I bring up a lot on this is, you know, the diversification people batted around like. Well, it's something that we could have done and we could just kind of, you know, point at another industry and say, well, we want to have one of those and we want to have all the stuff we had in Alberta, but we want to have it on the backs of, you know, whatever other industry. And that's incredibly hard to do, right? It's incredibly hard to say, what is the industry that's going to work here and is going to create that kind of long run, sustainable economic growth? And even if it does, it's not going to do it at the level of a multi- You know, an international oil boom coming to live in your backyard. And my response to people on that is always like, if you have the magic wand, if you think you've got it, the thing that is going to, you know, employ a whole bunch of people and create a new economic base and everything else, like, do it in Southwestern Ontario, do it in Northeastern New Brunswick, do it in, you know, all of these other places which have economic desolation today. They're not having to wait for the oil industry to collapse to have it. There's a, you know, there's a lot of unemployed people traveling all over the country for work coming from those regions. Uh, sorry, a lot of unemployed people and a lot of people traveling all over the country for work. Like if you have that magical thing that you think you can do, that might be the place to start. Don't you know to wait for the oil sands plants to close down to do that. Do it today. And all of a sudden those great ideas sort of seem to evaporate when somebody hits them right in front with well why not do it right here right now today
1: interesting interesting um so just just there's so much there was there's so much there uh in terms of in terms of talking about diversification in terms of of where alberta's economy economy is and 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 where it's going in the in the in the current context um just I, w- I want to loop back just just mm-hmm. a bit to the to the carbon tax to climate change and what we what we started the conversation about today. Yeah, where 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 does this leave Canada in the fight against climate change?
2: Uh, well, it essentially you said it in your opener that it's it's almost a, a little anticlimactic because it says that the things that the federal government was doing they can continue to do. It's not like the world changed. It's almost it's harder to talk about because the world didn't change. So it still leaves us with a really important tool. And, you know, with the new announcement that the prime minister made at the end of December. For the first time, it probably leaves us on track to maybe meet our targets like we've got a we're nine years out and we still have a credible chance at 2030. That's probably never been the case i mean it turned out that the pandemic got us mildly close probably to our 2020 target but only because the world stopped Uh, but the you know we we have a chance at this if that agenda of increasing carbon prices and complementary policies and you know progress in renewable power and continued cheap gas so the coal phases out faster than we would imagine and, and all of these things keep pulling in the same direction, you know, we could actually get there. But it, you know, I think you're still going to see, I mentioned it in my CBC piece that, you know, there's more legal fights to come. There's legal fights to come on the actual implementation of this legislation. So none of that was up for dispute. So which you heard saw that a little bit in the premier's press conference where he said, well, we might need to examine why Quebec gets to have a lower carbon price than everybody else. That wasn't up for discussion in this court case but it will be up for discussion in a future one. And Justice Rowe kind of laid out a roadmap to challenge that in his reasons. The other things that you're seeing in other places in the world, and we saw a little bit of it in Canada, was these rights-based challenges for uh, climate change. So do we have a right to a clean environment? Does the government have a responsibility to cut emissions almost from a charter perspective? So we saw one case uh, rejected here, or thrown out here at, a, at an early stage, but I think we'll see more. And then the other one that I, I linked to in my CBC piece was uh, a, a cases in the Netherlands where a challenge is actually brought forward, and the Netherlands is being the government is being forced to enact more stringent climate change policies. They're being forced to meet their international commitments and meet sort of scientific emissions reductions by essentially judicial review of government policy so I don't know that we'll get that far in Canada but there's a few of these other there's more legal gambits to be resolved this isn't the end of the the story from the courts
1: that 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 is that is absolutely fascinating and as those uh I'm sure we'll have a deluge of court cases come out or 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 uh, or uh, rulings come out from from different courts and, and and Supreme courts and at that time we would love to have you come back and join us and, and, <laughs> uh, and d- decode, use your, your special, uh, uh, decoder ring to help us understand what, what, it, what exactly, uh, exactly that those, that, that means for Alberta and for Canada and in the, you know, e- uh, economically and in the, in the fight against climate change. Thank you very much for joining us today, Andrew. This has been a, a fascinating discussion. Um, I, uh, I really appreciate you, uh, lending your, your knowledge and, uh, and uh, and interest and and uh, and explanations to us on on
2: on this file. Oh, thanks for letting me nerd out on a Sunday afternoon. This is great. Yeah,
1: yeah, of course. Anytime, we'd we'd lo- love to have you back. And uh, and even if we be, we you know, we could even do like a special like war room episode and have you back on if you're interested.
2: Yeah, we're um, doing a pa- Martin Olsinski and uh, Sandy Garasino and I are doing a panel this week on the Inquisition and the War Room and a whole oh, bunch of stuff. That's great. So Wait, no, yeah, where, she-
1: where can people find that?
2: Uh, University of Calgary Law School. I'll I'll put it okay. up on my. T- I'll send it to you so you can put it in the notes or whatever. But for sure, uh,
1: absolutely. That sounds yeah, so great.
2: We, so we can uh, take apart the the Allen Inquiry slash Inquisition into unAlbertan activities.
1: When uh, when do you think they're going to they're going to when do you think uh, Steve Allen's going to release his report?
2: I don't know if he's ever going to release a report. Do you think he's going to get another extension? <laughs> I. I i have no because i i think the reality is going to be that you know any at this stage he still hasn't really opened the door to a lot of his obligations and so i think the government's going to look and say i don't know if we can release the thing that he's going to publish because it will be counter to his requirements under the law and exposes the government to a lot of legal risk
1: yeah it's it's really fascinating how uh, how much they've opened themselves up to, kind of just walked into on this. You know, this would have been about oh, almost two years ago now. But I did a uh, myself and David Klymenhaga spoke at the Parkland Institute conference at the University of Alberta, and we talked about the War Room and we talked about the Allen Inquiry, the public inquiry into anti-Alberta energy campaigns. And uh, I mean, one of one of the co- I seem to remember one of the comments that I made was that I I, I just assumed at that point that they would release something. A a report that simply just confirmed all the political allegations that the government had made and they just you know and and it would just be it would just be a confirmation because it was a I mean it's clearly a a political inquisition it's clearly a very politically motivated inquiry in a way that we haven't seen public inquiries in Alberta um, in in recent memory Um, so I'm surprised I'm constantly surprised that they're just they're you know they're they're delaying it and and I mean it it shouldn't be this hard to just you know write write up a brief that attack, attacks your opponents, but I mean obviously there's there's legal obligations that uh, that that they need to meet and and uh, and things that they're exposing themselves to as well.
2: Yeah, and I think this government in some ways keeps running into this, right? They for, they forget the difference between the law and the politics and imagine that the law follows what they want it to, whether it's the referenda or equalization or the inquisitions or the you know court challenges around climate change.
1: Yeah, well, I think that, I think that's a good a good note to wrap up wrap up the the podcast on. It basically describe, describes the uh, the the current provincial government. Um, thanks again, Andrew, for uh, for joining us today. This has been great. Um, thanks for to everyone who's been listening, uh, who who's listening, and uh, thanks again to our producer Adam Rosenhart, who we got to talk to at the beginning of the podcast for uh, making this podcast sound so great. You are a very talented man, Adam, and uh, and we appreciate you. The Dave Berta podcast is a proud member of the Alberta podcast network, locally grown community supported. Send us your feedback on Twitter or Instagram at, at Dave Berta or to the, on the Dave Berta Facebook page, or you can even send us an old fashioned email at podcast at Dave Berta.ca. And we would love it if you could leave a review or a rating where you listen to the podcast. We always, uh, always love to hear, uh, hear your feedback. Um, thanks again for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.